Good evening. My name is Diana. The Old Testament reading is found in Genesis 16, verses 7, 8, 10, and 13. The Lord's messenger found Hagar at a spring in the desert, the spring on the road to Shur, and said, Hagar, Sarai's servant, where did you come from and where are you going? She said, from Sarai, my mistress, I'm running away. The Lord's messenger also said to her, I will give you many children, so many they can't be counted. Hagar named the Lord who spoke to her. You are Elroy, because she said, Can I still see after he saw me? The word of the Lord. The New Testament reading is found in Galatians 2 verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in my body, I live by faith. Indeed, by the faithfulness of God's Son, who loved me and gave himself for me. The word of the Lord. And now, if you're able, please stand for the the reading found in Luke 1 verses 46 through 49. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, And holy is his name, the gospel of the Lord. Let's remain standing as we pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are indeed the God who speaks and calls to us, the God who comes to dwell in us, your Son, Jesus, Emmanuel. The God who lives within us, the Holy Spirit. And so we ask you now that you'd quicken our hearts, that you'd open up our ears, open up our eyes, open up our minds and our hearts to be able to be attentive and alert and awake, watchful this Advent to all that you're saying and doing in us. We pray these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, Amen. You may be seated. Well, I just want to say tonight before we start into the scriptures, just how grateful I am uh, to you for all of your faithfulness. And, you know, those of you that are watching online, uh, many of you have been doing this for months now. You have yet to come to an in-person gathering. Maybe you found yourself with uh, a situation where it has left you particularly vulnerable. And I just want to say, I know that this is not what you want watching at home, but we're so grateful that you're doing this to have some form, some approximation of gathering together as the saints. And we are all longing for the day when we can pack an old creaky high school uh, together uh, someday and worship together as a church. And for all of you in the room, thank you for doing this. I know this is an unusual uh, time of day for our worship gatherings. I know that this is an unfamiliar place, and we've been doing this since the end of May. And still, for many of you, it feels like, gosh, this is still disorienting. I, I understand 
And so I just want to thank you for rolling with all of these changes and flowing with it and trying to fight tooth and nail to be the church and keep gathering virtually or in person. So give yourself a hand. Come on, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for doing this. Tonight we begin a series on Advent, and it's going to take us all the way up until Christmas Eve. If those of you who have been journeying with New Life downtown for a few years, you know that Advent is the, the journey up to Christmas. It is uh, in Christian practice. It is a season by itself. It's not synonymous with Christmas. It is a season, like Jason said earlier, uh, that is one of preparation for the joy of Christmas, and it's marked in its own particular way. Now, I just want you to know, none of us here are fussy about that stuff. If you're listening to Christmas carols at home, so are we, okay? So, and we have our Christmas tree up. We have, we've had it up for a week now, so nobody, there's no liturgical church calendar police uh, happening here. We, this is 2020. You do what you need to do uh, to find joy, okay? But I just want you to know that when we mark Advent, this is the, also the beginning of a, uh, the Christian year. So we, we mark time around the life of Christ and we begin to journey around the events of his life on earth. And so Advent begins that preparation, Christmas, his birth, Epiphany, the recognition of him as king and on and on we go into Lent and then into Easter and there's this way of marking time throughout a good chunk of the year, half a year or so uh, around the life of Christ. And tonight, we're, we're kicking off this series and we're calling this series a revolutionary advent, a revolutionary advent. And if you're the note-taking kind of person, you can write that down. A revolutionary advent, the subtitle of the series is a series on the Magnificat. The Magnificat is the song uh, that Mary sang in Luke 1. And tonight, in part one, we're going to talk about how the revolution is personal. Revolution is such an exciting word, isn't it? Uh, there was a song back in the 90s, a Christian song with Kirk Franklin and God's property that said, do you want a revolution? And the people go, woo, woo, do you want a revolution? And of course, uh, now if you're Hamilton fans, maybe you're, you're thinking of the lyric, do you want a revolution or a revelation? And on and on it goes, my, my teenagers could know it all. Yeah, don't get me started flowing, Ken, because it, it'll be over uh, right there. A revolution is such an exciting word and a powerful word and it gets our blood flowing and maybe you're thinking of uh, Les Mis and the song of angry men when our blood flows red or something like that and it's the stuff that fills the pages of history books and it makes me think of a story my good friend over here Dan O'Brien about seven and a half years ago he was kind enough to accompany me uh, to England, I, I was presenting a paper at an academic conference, and, and really, I hadn't even begun my doctorate yet. I was not even a baby academic. I was like a poser uh, academic, which I still feel like in many ways. But I was presenting this paper, hadn't even started my postgrad work, and I wanted to know if someone would travel with me, and Dan was gracious enough, and we found cheap flights on Icelandic air or something like that, and we get to this place, and the conference was just outside Oxford, and so we decided to spend a day before the conference just uh, visiting some of the different colleges in Oxford. And you know this, uh, that the university is made up of several different colleges. And we walk in one of the gift uh, shops or, or visitor centers sort of thing of, of one of these colleges. And a student is working there. And Dan, being quite an extrovert, just strikes up a conversation. And he says, oh, well, you know, what are you studying here at Oxford? And she says, I'm reading history, which... Uh, that's your major, only they don't call it that. And he says, oh, that's great. What, what, any particular focus? And she says, I'm studying revolutions. 
And he says, oh, that's, that's wonderful. Like, maybe the American Revolution? And she politely takes a step back and she says, well, mostly the French Revolution. And Dan, ever the patriot, says, well, but how come not the American Revolution? And our polite um, gift shop attendant said, well, the American Revolution wasn't technically a revolution. We were both a little taken aback. And she went on to explain that the king wasn't actually overthrown, and nor was he beheaded, and power was not actually reversed. It was more technically a rebellion. She was right. We didn't like it, so we went and ate some fish and chips in a nearby pub. When you think about revolutions, it isn't just the seeding away or the sequestering away from the parts of life that we don't like. A true revolution is the upending of the ordering of society as we have known it. A revolution is not a group of people who say, I don't like that, so I'm going to go over here and do something different. Many times, this is what we think the arrival of Jesus was. That the arrival of Jesus meant that a little group of people could do a cozy little club and sing cute little songs in the sweet by and by until one day they fly away in the sky. But that's not a revolution. That's just forming your little club. A revolution is the reordering of society. And what I want you to see tonight as we look at Mary's song is that Mary is not singing a sweet little song of praise. She's singing about the reordering of society. She's singing about the reordering of the world as they had known. And now Israel in the first, in, in the first century was in desperate need of a reordering of the world. In fact, they had come back to their land hundreds of years earlier only to then be overrun by other empires. They found themselves constantly being kicked about in between the battles between two larger or larger uh, nations and empires. And the most recent one, they found themselves under the thumb of Roman rule. And Rome let them set up their own sort of puppet governors. And they said, sure, you can have a king, quote unquote. How cute. Let's call him king of the Jews, Herod. Play along. But we all know and they all knew that this wasn't the real thing. They were like prisoners in their own land, living in exile while still living in their homes. And so when this angel visits Mary and he says to her, the Messiah is going to be born by you, through you, she starts to sing. And when you understand the longing and the hope of the people of Israel in the first century, you recognize that the Magnificat, Mary's song, is not a little cute, sweet, beautiful, gorgeous, Western European choral even song. Mary's song was a bit more like punk rock. Because she's talking about the complete upheaval and reordering. And tonight we're going to look at the first few verses of it. Luke 1 verse 46, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked, he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. If you're the underlining type, underline that word looked. He has looked. He has looked. The message, the first thing I want us to see tonight I want, to hear, I want you to hear in the message, but before that, the first thing I want you to see tonight from this song, 
from these opening lines is that God sees you. God sees you. Mary opens her mouth and begins to sing and she says, he has looked at me. He's looked at me. He's seen me. He has regard for me. In the message paraphrase, Eugene Peterson puts it like this. And Mary said, I'm bursting with God news. I'm dancing the song of my Savior God. God took one good look at me and look what happened. I'm the most fortunate woman on earth. I love that paraphrase. God took one good look at me, and I'm the most fortunate woman on earth. The truth is, Mary finds herself in a little line here of other women that God has looked upon. We heard tonight the Old Testament reading from Genesis about the story of Hagar. And very often, we think that Abraham was the first person to name God or to give God a proper name. Or Abraham, it was at Moriah with Isaac where he says, oh, you are Yahweh, the provider, Yahweh, Yireh. But actually, before Abraham even sees God closely, Hagar sees God closely. God revealed himself first in this most personal way to a female Egyptian slave, a woman who had three strikes against her in the ancient world. And we heard in that text, she says, how can, I have been see, how can I see the one who has seen me? And you think of story after story after story, and Mary finds herself in this long line, and it's as if Mary's saying, look, God took one look at me. I joined this long line of others, particularly women that God has paid attention to and noticed people who found themselves on the fridges and edges and margins of society. And she says, I'm the most fortunate woman of all. He's looked at me. The first thing I want us to hear tonight is that God sees you. Maybe it's difficult for us to think about that because Salvation often gets wrapped up in such theological language that it sounds so dusty and formal. And what's your atonement theory, brother? Do you believe in substitution or you know, all of this stuff? And we've got technicalities and we've enshrined it in all kinds of centuries and centuries of doctrine that we think that salvation is this grandiose idea. But never forget that when the Nicene Creed, the confession of the Christian church for 1,700 years, when it introduces us to the word salvation, the stanza starts like this. For us. For us and for our salvation he came from heaven for us and for our salvation we we rightly want to displace the attention from ourselves and say oh it's not about me it's not about me it's true salvation is not about you but it is for you it is for you it's a deeply personal story there's something so meaningful when somebody does something for you and you know that it was created for you. When um, Holly and I were dating, or rather when I was pursuing Holly in our college years, and I had to work hard for that, I, uh, I would write her poems, and I would write her songs, uh, two of them actually. And, uh, and these early poems were not that good. They, they, they weren't great. I mean, it probably would have been a better quality poem if I had just ripped something from some old poetry book and said, here, here's a poem for you. 
But feeble as my rhymes were, they meant something more because it was for her. It was written for her. And the songs, they, you know, they're not going to be any sort of top 40 billboard chart-topping songs. They're, nobody's going to record this thing. You'll never hear it on the radio. But it was written for her. Parents in the room when a kid, what if your child on your birthday or for Christmas got you a card that they picked up at King Super and said, here, Mom, here's a card for your happy birthday. And the words are beautiful and it's in gold letter. You'd be like, I mean, that's kind of cool, you know. But if your child grabs a sheet of white printing paper and draws a picture with crayons and scribbles something and says, you're the best mom in the whole world and gives it to you, you're like, oh my God, I'm going to frame this. It's not because it's art, it's because it's for you. Imagine that the God of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth, the Nicene Creed, introduces us to God, the Father, the Almighty, and then the one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things are made. And we're like, oh, wow, this is so cosmic and epic. And then it says, for us, for us, and for our salvation he came down from heaven. Friends, don't rush by Advents and Christmas imagining that this is just some big epic story out there and miss that it is for you. Why did Jesus come? For you. Who does God see? You. He sees you. There's a chance that some of us listening tonight We'll imagine that there is some sort of low status that makes us feel unseen. Mary says, he's looked on me, the low status of his servant, she says. He's seen me in my lowest estate, my low state, lowly status. What might that be for you? What's a lowly status for you? Maybe it's because you, you're here and you don't quite fit the categories by age or ethnicity or gender, and you're like, I don't know, the power brokers, the movers and shakers, I don't know if I fit that profile. Maybe you're here and you think, well, I mean, I'm, I'm really sort of outside the lines of what the American dream is. I, my business is not working, my employment style, I just sort of do this, and it's not, I'm not climbing any ladders, I'm not impressing anybody, I'm not even sure my career is trending in the right direction. And Susan was, well, do I, I'm kind of outside the American dream, or maybe, and I've heard this from people over the years, who've said, well, actually, I just feel like I don't fit the Christian box, I don't fit the evangelical box, I'm kind of rough, I didn't have a great family, uh, I'm not married, I don't have 2.5 kids, I don't, I'm just, you know, I don't live in the burbs, I don't do this, I, I don't fit kind of the evangelical idea of the, the right family. What is it that makes you feel like you have a lowly state? Surely God might look at them, but not me. Surely God sees them. Well, of course God sees them. Haven't you seen their Instagram post? Of course God looks at them, but God doesn't look at me. What is it that makes you think that? Luke's gospel is particularly focused on showing us Jesus' attention on the ones that society has forgotten or ignored. 
A few chapters later in Luke 6, Jesus gives one of his famous sermons and it says this. It says, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and he said, blessed are you who are poor. Now this is different than Matthew. Matthew 5 says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And we're like, oh, poor in spirit. It means I don't actually have to be poor, right? Right. Luke's gospel, Jesus is like, I'm just gonna say it. Blessed are you who are poor. And the people are like, are you, are you sure? Because, I mean, if you read Proverbs, it says that if you're blessed, you will be wealthy and you'll prosper. And if you read Deuteronomy 28, it says that if you obey the Lord, you shall prosper. So, so Jesus, are you sure? You want to say, blessed are the poor. He says, no, I'm sure about that. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Once again, to recalibrate, to kind of shock us a little bit with this, listen to the paraphrase of it in the message. Peterson says, you're blessed when you've lost it all. God's kingdom is there for the finding. You're blessed when you're ravenously hungry. Then you're ready for the messianic meal. You're blessed when the tears flow freely because joy comes with the morning. Friends, if you're here tonight, if you're listening tonight, and you think, no, surely not me. I'm not one of those people who's riding it out through the pandemic and don't, not even sir, sh- you know, shaken by this. I'm, I'm just fine. We're making it through. Maybe you're not. Maybe you find yourself saying, actually, this is, 2020 has rocked us. Like my relationships aren't working. Everything is kind of falling apart. Like my, my marriage, we're squabbling and the kids, I'm getting mad all the time. It's like homeschool, barbershop, work, kitchen. It's all the same room. Am I blessed now, pastor? You're blessed when you've lost it all. You're blessed when the tears flow freely. You're blessed when you're ravenously hungry. Mary began to understand this. I think it's so fascinating to me that the themes that Mary sings about, her son will preach about. It sometimes says to me, moms, don't underestimate your influence on your children. I sometimes think, did Mary repeat this song? Is that how it was written down? Because she didn't just sing it one time, but like she sang it over and over again. Like, did it become a well-known song among her friends and the neighbors and the community. There goes Mary singing again. Magnify the Lord, she's saying, okay. Mary's singing these themes over and over again. Maybe she sang it to her kids. And Jesus grew up kind of thinking, yep, that's why I came. That's why I came, so they would understand that God sees them when they've lost it all. God sees them when they're hungry. God sees them when the tears flow freely. The song goes on in second part of verse 48. Mary says, for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. The second thing I want us to see from this song is that not only that God sees you, but that others will see what God has done. Others will begin to notice. She says, they're going to call me blessed. Now, that might sound like a funny way, funny thing to say, like, Mary, whoa, cool it, you know. Others will call me blessed. But notice the very end of that little section of the song, she says, and holy is his name. Something happens when people begin to see what God has done, they begin to see who God is. 
When people begin to see what God has done, they actually begin to see who God is. This is why I wanna say to you, there is a way to pray and ask God to do something on your behalf that isn't actually selfish because you know that if God answered your prayers, it would result in others seeing what God has done. That's the goal of it. In fact, one of the ways we can test our prayers is to say, if God answered all of your prayers, would that result in more glory for him or just more comfort for you? If God answered all of our prayers, would it actually result in more glory for him or more comfort for us? And sometimes the two go together. Sometimes it is our healing and our deliverance and our rescue that does make others see, whoa, look what God has done. It was kind of comical, but this, this whole journey for me over the early part of the fall with my voice and going out to see doctors in Boston and all of that, Holly and I tried to make it a point to to try to be a, 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 a presence that was a blessing even to the people that were a blessing to us. The day after surgery, I, I wasn't allowed to talk for two weeks after the surgery, but I'd written stuff down on, on, a, on my phone and I showed it to the surgeon. And I said, thank you so much for being so caring and so attentive and so patient. And I said, you're like a pastor. And he read it and he goes, oh, that's weird. He goes, nobody's ever said that to me before. <laughs> and then I said, well, can I, can I send you something? And I sent them under the guise of, I just want you to hear what my voice sounds like. I sent them the audiobook of Blessed, Broken, Given. Sneaky. Sneaky. And then I went up, and I, I went up to this, a specialist in Denver for some follow-ups, and he starts talking to me about this app that he's listening to for his devotions. He's like, I'm kind of new to this church thing. I grew up in a different uh, religion altogether, but I'm starting to explore Jesus and and he said, I, I, the scripture this morning on my app was about revelation. You know anything about that? I was like, as a matter of fact, I do. Have I got a series for you? Pointed him to the Lectio 365 app. Sent him a CD set of my audiobook for Blessed, Broken, Given. Why am I doing this? Because I'm interested in sort of just, you know, look, that's not going to result in any sales. These are not what Instagram calls influencers. This is so that others can see what God has done and begin to glorify God. One of the best things we can give one another as the people of God is our attention. One of the best gifts you can give someone is the kind of attentiveness to their life and to their story that recognizes God at work in their story. I don't just mean like attentiveness like, uh-huh, yes, Oh, is that so, so wonderful? Mm, lovely. I think the challenge for all followers of Jesus is to give a person the kind of attention that you're actually beginning to be like a little grace detective and you're picking up the clues of God at work and you're listening to their story and you're saying, uh-huh, uh-huh. Hey, do you think that God is, and they're like, Recently, I was sitting for coffee with an old friend, and he was telling me of all the challenges he's been through. We've walked together for a number of years, and he was sharing with me something that was developing in his life, and I just sat down, I put my coffee cup down, and I said, bro, listen to you. Think about where you were a year ago. Think about what you were saying to me two years ago. Look at what God has done now. And he goes, yeah, that's true. And tears began to come out of his eye and out of my eye 
we were leaking awesomeness because men don't cry, right? Or something like that. Just kidding, I cry all the time. And I was like, do, do you see this? And he's like, yes. The gift of attentiveness to one another. Really, our, our, our job as pastors is simply to be a witness to God's grace at work in each other's life, to pay attention to it and then to call their attention to it, to say, you're just gonna move right by this moment, but hang on a minute. Let's build a memorial here and give God some praise. Others will see what God has done. We give each other the gift of this kind of attentiveness and attention. And then this doesn't mean, though, that it becomes obvious. Don't forget that Mary was still living on the margins of a powerful empire. You can scour the history books of the Roman Empire. They're not going to talk to you about Mary. You can read all of the different records of Caesars and emperors. They're not going to write to you about Mary. So it doesn't mean that because God sees you and others see you that, oh, now I'm going to have a traveling ministry. It doesn't mean that all of a sudden you're going to gain you know, 10,000 followers on Twitter or whatever. God could care less. But it means that the ones who are paying attention will take note. And it also doesn't mean that things become easy. Mary would go from this moment of an angelic visitation only to face the scorn and ridicule and rumors from her own family. You know what that says to me? Not only does it mean that just because God sees us and God is at work in our life, that it doesn't mean that things are going to be easy, but it also means if things are difficult, it doesn't mean God's not at work. It also means that just because you're facing opposition and you're being misunderstood and, and you're, you're, you're living in this tucked, hidden way, it doesn't mean that God's not doing anything. I think in, in, in some way, we all need to have these sort of eyes that would see, God, you see me, and you're doing something. I don't think anybody's going to believe it, because they're looking at the evidence, and they're like, I don't know, man. But I'm going to hang on to this, that you are at work. And what we, all of us, what we need is just a few faithful friends, a few faithful witnesses. Mary had Elizabeth. We need a few others who would say, no, I see it too. I see it too. The final piece of this song that we're going to look at tonight, verse 46 and 47. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. That's the beginning. It's how the song began. The final thing I want to say tonight is that we will glorify the Lord together. We will glorify the Lord together. Mary's song became one of the first hymns of the church. In fact, when, when historians are trying to track what did early Christians sing in worship, the best reconstruction of that is to say, well, well actually, there, there's, there's um, four hymns right there in Luke's gospel. One of them is Mary's song. Her song of personal praise became the text of public worship for the early church. Isn't that something? In fact, many of you know this. But to this day, the Magnificat is sung in churches regularly, if not weekly, all around the world. Every time I go to England and I attend a morning prayer at Durham Cathedral or even song, whatever, and it's been a few years now. But every time, one of the texts for the morning prayer or the even song is the Magnificat. 
Could this little Jewish girl have known that? Write a song of praise. 2,000 years later, Christians are singing it everywhere. See, the early Christians, when they started to grapple with what Jesus had done, they held in tension the universal and the personal. This is why Paul, Paul, the great theologian of the kingdom, the great theologian of the gospel, the guy who writes some of the most dense sentences about salvation, can also say this in Galatians 2, and we heard it. We said, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I live, in the body I live by faith, indeed, by the faithfulness of God's Son. And here it is, Paul, give us some lofty theology. Give us some dense theological sentence. And he says, I, all I want to say is that the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It is true that the gospel is more than that. It's bigger than that and it has cosmic implications. But it is not less than this. The Son of God loved you and gave himself for you. Advent is indeed revolutionary. Advent is revolutionary. It changes everything. Jesus became low to save the lowly. His very birth was a manifesto about his mission to the marginalized. Advent is indeed revolutionary, but the revolution is personal. Tonight, I wonder if you can hear the invitation of the Lord to begin to welcome his work in you. And maybe for some of you, this is a moment to turn around the trajectory, to say, I do need a revolution. I do need an upending. I do need a reordering of my own life. Never mind the world out there. Never mind society and systems and structures. Can we talk about me? Can you reorder my life? Some of you tonight, that's where it begins to say, start with me, Lord. Bring a revolution that is personal. Change the trajectory of my life even now. Change it with me, Lord. Others of you tonight is a time to sort of testify and to think about where you once were. Think about where you were six months ago, nine months ago, a year ago, two years ago, five years ago, ten years ago, and to say, wow, God, you have really made all the difference in the world. Jesus, you have really changed things around. I look around the room and I recognize different ones of your stories and I think, there it is. You make me want to glorify the Lord. The way that you've faithfully walked through challenges, disease, death, disappointments, I look around the room and I think, you make me want to glorify the Lord together. So would you stand with me tonight?